First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now as we look at this verse, we do so in our approach as God's people to the Lord's table. The apostle, he has been speaking about Christian sufferings, about the sufferings of the saints. Peter has been saying there in verse 8 that Christians should be kind, be pitiful and courteous, and pray for people and not render evil to people, but rather bless people. And especially Christians should watch their mouths, watch what they say, refrain their tongue from evil, and the lips from speaking guile. And they should seek peace with other people and seek to be kind to other people. If you do this, are kind and considerate and watch your life and don't tell lies about others and watch how you speak to others, then the Lord will look after you. That's what Peter's saying. The eyes of the Lord will be upon the righteous. His ears will be open to their prayers. The Lord will look after you. He'll hear your prayers if you do right and if you do good and you don't do evil to other people. The Lord will bless you and he'll not let you be harmed and he'll look after you. And his face will be against all those who do evil against you. Of course, if you're like that, you'll not suffer, generally speaking. If you're righteous and good to people and kind to people, generally speaking, you'll be respected. You'll not suffer. But of course, we know that that's not always the case. And Peter now is bringing in where that is the case where you do suffer, even though you are these things, even though you are kind and righteous, and you do suffer, verse 13, but if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And so he talks in this context, gives counsel and gives guidance and gives direction how we ought to behave if we do suffer for righteousness' sake, if we're persecuted as Christians, I will not go into all the counsel that he gives and all the words that he he brings to the people of God in that regard. But he also brings them to Christ's sufferings. And it's in that context that he comes to Christ's sufferings. Remember, Christ experienced the same. And there's that word also, isn't there, in verse 18. Christ also hath suffered. And so he's bringing in the sufferings of Christ now to encourage the believers. Your sufferings that you have to endure, you must remember that the Lord Jesus Christ endured similar and worse. And so you should think of his sufferings whenever you're persecuted and whenever you're suffering. His sufferings he willingly endured for us. And so Peter brings us from Christian suffering to Christ's suffering. He brings us from the crucible of our persecution to the cross of his passion. And that's the route that he takes to get us there. He brings us to the cross. And if you're persecuted and suffering, child of God, because of your stand as a Christian, then do what Peter does. Get to the cross. Think of him who suffered for you. 
Think of Christ's sufferings. Whenever you are thinking of your sins, go to the cross to think of your Savior who died for your sins. And whenever you are suffering as a saint with your sorrows, go to the cross too to think of him who suffered also. And so that's why we're here at the sufferings of Christ. And then Peter goes on to speak about these sufferings of Christ. And while there's a resemblance between Christ's sufferings and the Christian sufferings, there's also an infinite gulf. And the infinite gulf is in the respects that Christ has died with purpose and bringing benefits to us in his sufferings. And we're going to deal with all of this now. So we're thinking about Christ's sufferings for us. And Christ's sufferings are that which bring us blessing and salvation. As we think about the all-sufficiency of Christ's sufferings, which is what Peter is dealing with in this verse, I want you to notice, first of all, that there are three persons in the text. There is Christ, who suffered once. There is God, that he brings us to. And then there is the Holy Spirit, who quickened his dead humanity, quickened by the Spirit. So there are three persons here. And this is very common in the Bible, in the New Testament. The apostles are Trinitarian. The apostles are always speaking about the three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Peter is Trinitarian. When he comes to deal with the cross and with the sufferings of Christ, he recognizes that there is one divine will, one triune God involved in it all. There are not three wills in God. There's only one will, the will of God. Three persons, one divine will. And they're all involved, this one divine will in the three persons, they're all involved in this work of salvation, in the cross work. And the atonement. God is reconciling the world unto himself. God. The triune God. And we must recognize that he is three in one and one in three. And we confess the trinity. And we must ever grow in the understanding of the orthodox and most holy doctrine of the Trinity. There's Christ who was incarnate, who died. There was the God, the Father, that he brought us to in his sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit concurring in all this work, working in the humanity of Christ as he offers himself and raises his dead body from the dead. Three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the text focuses, in the main, on the second person of the Trinity, Christ. And he focuses on Christ because it's Christ who suffers. It's Christ who had the body, the flesh. It's Christ who was incarnate. The Father did not suffer. The Spirit did not suffer. It was the person of Christ incarnate 
that suffered. And so we must remember this. And what I'm saying is, and these are my points, the first one is this, the sufferings of Christ were real. They were painful. They were felt by the Son of God. They were experienced. Christ suffered. And he suffered because he was flesh. What does it say here? Christ has suffered for sins just for the unjust, being put to death in the flesh. The incarnation is first. God as God cannot suffer. He's pure spirit. He cannot be crucified and nailed to the tree as pure spirit. He cannot shed blood and suffer the agonies of body because he's pure spirit. But God incarnate suffers. The word made flesh who takes a human nature to himself, a real, tangible, material human nature that can be felt, that can be seen. And as he takes it, he experiences in his person all that that humanity is capable of experiencing. And that includes the agony of pain. That includes suffering. That includes death. It was the word made flesh, made flesh to suffer and to die. God manifest in flesh, a body hast thou prepared me, born of a woman. And so the humanity of Christ is true and real. There were those who taught it was just a spectrum, just an appearance like an Old Testament theophany where God comes along and he looks like a man, takes the appearance of a man, but there's not really tangible blood and flesh there. This is true humanity. This is flesh put to death in the body, in the flesh. And we'd be reminded tonight, this is my body, flesh. So it's real, material substance. And in that body, he suffered, and he only could suffer because he had that body, and he took that body to suffer and to die in our stead. He suffered. For those pains that we feel, that we dread, that make us to almost despair, if anyone has known the experience of living with pain and in pain, he felt that acutely even more so than us because of the tenderness of his humanity and its freedom from all corruption he suffered and Peter's always saying that suffered he does say he died put to death in the flesh but the word that he likes to use is he suffered suffered First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for us. Verse 22, when he suffered, he threatened not. He bore our sins on his own body on the tree. By his stripes we are healed. He's always 
thinking of the sufferings, the physical sufferings, the agony. Chapter 4, verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us. And whenever the prophets, they testified, chapter 1, verse 11, whenever the Holy Spirit testified in the Old Testament, he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ. See how Peter's always saying it? Always talking about the sufferings of the Lord. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Chapter 4 verse 13. And in chapter 5 he says that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He witnessed Gethsemane. He witnessed the cross. He witnessed all the sufferings of his dear Lord in the three years that he was with him. I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Always talking about them. The sufferings of the incarnate one. Real. Truly painful. Because he had a true, real humanity body. And secondly, Christ's sufferings were unto death. Peter, when he speaks about the sufferings of Christ, he's speaking about the sufferings from his birth until his death, his whole physical life what it had to endure from his circumcision right up until the end to the death. But especially he's thinking about Gethsemane and especially he's thinking about the cross. And sufferings is just a a, a sort of synonym for death, his death. He suffered and died on the cross. His death was an agonizing death. It was the most terrible suffering dying that he experienced So they were acute always, but most acute at Calvary, culminating in his death. And so Peter puts it thus, suffered, put to death in the flesh, that is in the body. He died. Christ not only suffered for our sins, he died for our sins. What does the the creed say? Crucified, dead, Buried. You remember whenever Jesus was on the cross at the end, he cried with a loud voice and he gave up the ghost. And you remember whenever the soldiers came, they were going to take them down early. They broke the legs of the thieves so that they might expire the more quickly. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. They had put him to death in the body. He truly died. For our sins. And that's the second thing. The sufferings in the body. Unto death. Put to death in the flesh. And then thirdly. These sufferings. That culminated in him being put to death. Were not for any fault in him. The suffering of Christ. Is not connected with his faults. For he had no faults. I mean, all the people of God have faults, but Christ had none. He was perfect. He was sinless. Now, it's no honor to suffer for your own faults. Sometimes we do wrong. We bring all the suffering on ourselves. And if we bear that well, that's fine. But, you know, it's not really an honor. And that Peter is talking about that. If you're buffeted for your faults, you know, there's no glory in that. There's no honor in that. But if you're a Christian and you're good and you're righteous and you're kind and you're genuine and sincere and you suffer for it, 
Well, that, that's honourable. That's persecution for righteousness' sake. It's not good for those who persecute, but for those who suffer happy are you rejoice. It's an honour, it's a glory. It's glory to God that you thus suffer. And so every Christian knows of what it is to suffer for their faults, but we trust also that they know something of what it is to suffer for being righteous and just good and honest and kind. And whatever the Lord Jesus Christ, he was like that. He suffered for righteousness sake. The just is not what the text says. The just for the unjust. He was the just one. Or we might translate it, the righteous one. The righteous one for the unjust ones. He was the just man. And the Bible's always saying this. You remember how even the prophet Zechariah, he says, daughter of Zion, here's your king coming. He's sitting on the fold of an ass. He's bringing salvation. And one of the descriptions of him is just, righteous. You remember how Peter said in the preaching on the day of Pentecost, ye denied the Holy One and the just. And ye asked for Barabbas, the sinner, the unjust one, to be delivered and to be set free. You desire a, a murderer to be granted unto you. And you murdered, you killed the prince of life, the just one, the righteous one. You remember even Pilate's wife. Uh, how she had this dream and she was disturbed that Pilate was dealing with Jesus. And she had this dream and she said to him, warning her husband. Don't have anything to do with that just one. That righteous one. Don't be getting involved in this. Don't be sentencing and condemning him. You remember Pilate locked into the corner as it were. He, he tried to wash his hands of the whole business. And he says I, I'm, I'm free of the blood of this just one. Of course it didn't take away the sin. But he still felt something of the justice of this man. The righteousness of, of him. Even though he condemned him. So his, his suffering and his death was not for his fault. He's not like those two thieves that are dying for their own sins, their own crimes. The sufferings of Christ are the sufferings of persecution, the sufferings of wickedness at the hands of wicked men. God the Father says, my righteous servant. The Bible says, Jesus the righteous. And of course, saints ought to be righteous too. And to a much lesser degree, they suffer for righteousness sake. But Jesus did not suffer for righteousness sake only. There's something else in the sufferings of Christ. And that's what we go on to now. There's an aspect of Christ's sufferings that goes way beyond the Christian suffering. And that is Christ's sufferings had purpose. They had atoning purpose. They had redemptive purpose. They weren't Christian sufferings. There may be a similarity between Christian suffering and Christ's suffering. But when it comes to the purpose of them. When it comes to the effects of them. Those sufferings. There's a great gulf between Christ's sufferings and Christian sufferings. Christian sufferings are not atoning. Christian sufferings do not take away sin. Christian sufferings do not reconcile sinners to God. But Christ's sufferings have a redemptive aspect. What does it say? Suffered for sins. The just 
for the unjust in the place of others, persons for sinners. There was purpose in Christ's death. Not even the most holy martyrs, and they were very holy martyrs, and their godliness we could not touch, for they had great heights of sanctification, especially those early Christian martyrs in the early centuries. But not even their sufferings were atoning. Only Christ's sufferings save. Only Christ's sufferings deal with sin. For sins, iniquities, the unclean deeds. For the unjust, unjust persons, sinners. Sinners who do the sins and the wicked deeds. The persons and their sins. Christ's death is for that. For sinners and their sins. And he dies as our saviour. He dies to save. So there is purpose in his sufferings. Divine design in them. The will of God in them. God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. There's something powerful in the death of Christ that is in no other death. His death is like none other. It was for sins and for sinners. You see, the Christian message congregation is not just that Christ died. That's not the Christian message. The seculars misbelieve that. The ungodly who, you know, have an idea of history and recognize that the Bible is historic and there is history here and not even they can deny that Jesus of Nazareth died. They believe that. They recognize that. Christ died and many saints died too and many good and holy men died as well and Christ has died. And some people, that's, that's all they see. Just his death like another death. Another holy man has died. Another prophet has died. Another person has died. The two thieves on the cross beside him, they died too. And so they died. But the Christian message is not that Christ died and just to believe that he died. No, the Christian message is he died for sins. He died for sinners. His blood is atoning. That's the Christian message. It is the purpose that makes Christ's death unique and special. So it's not just the place, Calvary. There were others died at Calvary. In fact, there were many died at Calvary. It was an execution spot. There was plenty of blood shed at Calvary. It's not just the place. It's not just the method. Because many were crucified. Many have died by crucifixion at Calvary. It's not just the time. Because Jesus wasn't the only one who died at Calvary at that particular hour. There were others died at the place at the same time as him. The thieves. So it's not about where. It's not about how. It's not about when. It's about why. Why that one died? He died for sins. He died as a sacrifice for sinners. 
His death was substitutionary. A life for our lives. For the unjust. In the place of the unjust. Like Barabbas. Barabbas pictures this. Because if Barabbas had been walking past the scene that day. He would have seen the middle tree. That's where he should have been. On the middle tree. He should have been crucified that day. On the middle tree. But he was released. And Jesus took his place. Jesus stood in his stead and he died for the unjust and in the place of the unjust. And that's just a figure, that's just a picture of an actual fact, what is happening. He's dying for his people. He's dying in the place of sinners. It was substitutionary, his death. And the purpose of his death is further described in the words that he might bring us to God. He died for sins. He died to bring us to God. Why do we have to be brought to God? Because we're far off. And because there's, as it were, wall or veil between us that cannot be passed through, that cannot be gone beyond, there is a gulf between God and the sinner. And sinners are distant. And sinners have their back turned to God. There's sin and there's enmity. And if they come into the presence of God as they are, they would be destroyed and consumed as they shall be whenever God comes to judge them. But Christ dies for them to bring them to God by a way of grace, by a way of reconciliation. He brings them nigh to God. He deals with the stain. He deals with the enmity. He deals with the guilt. He deals with the problems between God and the sinner. We need a saviour who can deal with this. We need a saviour who can reconcile us to God. We need a mediator who can be between us and bring us to God. And Christ alone is that mediator And he alone brings us to God in his blood. There's no being brought to God without his death. There's no being brought to God without his sufferings. They're all essential. They're all important. That's why he was incarnate. There could be no salvation unless he was incarnate and died and suffered in our stead. To bring us to God. The death of Christ was most necessary. To bring us to God. And he is so willing to come to suffer and to die. So he doesn't bring us to God without his sufferings. He doesn't bring us to God without an atonement. He dies for our sins. That. That he might bring us to God. And we are reminded of this tonight around the Lord's table. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. For the remission of your sins. That I might bring you to God. And then he prays that great intercessory prayer. John 17. As he does bring them to God. And so he is the priest. Who offers himself. And also brings us to God. You see, the barrier between God and the sinner is great. And the tabernacle taught that barrier, 
and the temple also in the great veil. It was always there. The blood of beasts and of goats and all the work that went out by the priests outside never took it away, never dealt with the veil. The priests of Israel never really brought Israel to God. They never ever got into the presence of God. They were never truly reconciled to God. And so Christ is the one who does this. And he is the one priest who has the atoning blood that penetrates the veil. And he brings sinners to God. And so you see, congregation, we can't atone for our sins. You know, some people talk about, oh, I'm atoning for my sins. I'm making a restitution. I'm doing these things. I'm doing the works that I might atone somehow for my sins and my wrongdoing. We can't atone. Christ must atone. He's the only one who can do it, and he has done it. Suffered, the past tense, suffered for our sins, died, put to death, the past tense. He has done it. And so he is, and this brings us to our fifth point, he is an all-sufficient saviour. There's a very important word here in this text. I haven't yet pointed it out, but I do so now. Christ also hath once suffered. Once. That's a word from the epistle to the Hebrews, where the author of the epistle to the Hebrews likes to use it once. Peter also uses it once suffered. Just once. It was only needed once. And that means one time, once for all, complete and not needing to be repeated. That is, it's sufficient. It's an all-sufficient suffering. It's an all-sufficient death. Nothing more needs to be added. It's once. It's finished. It's complete. It's done. It doesn't need to be repeated. It doesn't need to be built upon. As the epistle to the Hebrews says, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, he came once. He was incarnate once. He walked among men once. He gave himself on the cross and died once. He only got one chance. And it was a perfectly completed work. Christ once suffered to bear the sins of many. In that he died, he died unto sin once. And so that means that nothing more has to be done. Nothing needs to be added to it. Christ's death is effective. Christ's death is all sufficient. In the old covenant worship, once was never enough. It was again and again and again. The Day of Atonement was annual. The high priest had to go in annually with the blood of atonement. There never was satisfaction. There never was a real true atonement. There never was a time when the priest could sit down and the work was finished. Countless innumerable offerings. But now, everything is settled. And the matter is over. And the payment is made Paid in full in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, in the precious blood of atonement, once for all, complete everything we need as sinners. 
is found in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and in him alone. Nothing more is needed. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Complete. And he has offered to you. And you as a sinner must avail yourself of him. And you must trust in him. And you must rest in his suffering and in his death. And you must believe and come to receive him and to trust in him. There's no other way to have your sin dealt with. This is the only way. This is the only remedy. What a powerful, all-sufficient remedy it is. And so the work is done. And child of God, you're safe in Christ. And those sins that the devil brings up and reminds you of and begins to accuse you again as he is the old accuser, they've all been dealt with by Jesus Christ. He's put away sin. The work is finished. Your sins have been dealt with. You've been made now. You've been brought near to God. You can enter in and you ought to enter in. None during to make you afraid. And enjoy your freedom as a child of God. In the presence of your heavenly father. Having been made neither by the precious blood of Christ. Oh avail yourself of all your liberty. As the children of God. And enjoy the presence of God. And have confidence in the blood of Christ. And in the once for all offering for you. And give him praise. And come to his table tonight. In thanksgiving unto him. For his sacrifice. One other point here. Christ was triumphant in his sufferings. What does it say here? Peter can't stop the sentence Without saying this, quickened by the Spirit, made alive again. He lives. He rose from the dead. There is resurrection here. There is no crucifix. There is no Savior still on the cross. The cross is complete and past finished. The sufferings are all, all over. And he is off the cross. The cross is empty. The tomb is also empty. And this Savior lives. He lives on the power of an endless life. He died, but he rose. He lives eternally at the right hand of God in his resurrected humanity. He was triumphant in his death. The devil hasn't won the day. The devil is not the victor as Christ dies. But no, in death he destroys him that has the power of death. He rises from the dead and now Christ has the power of death. He has the keys of death. He is the resurrection and the life. The atonement is perfect in its effectiveness. Sin and death are dealt with. The fall is reversed. Satan is destroyed and no longer holds the sway over humanity. Christ lives. And we live in him and through him. He's alive forevermore. He's in the glory. 
He's able to bring us to God. So his, his death has accomplished it. His blood has accomplished it. But he's living to bring those people to God. To accompany them. To assist them. To come to them. To aid them. To drive the devil off when he accuses them. To shield them and shelter them. To answer all objections against them as the living advocate who has atoned for their sins. He's alive to be looked to and believed in. And so we don't look to a crucifix, but we look to the right hand of God. Where he has entered in on the power of his atoning death. To be the advocate for sinners. He's bringing us to God as our high priest. On the power of his death. We pray in his name. In confidence. That we have access to God. And that we're heard for his sake. Who has dealt with our sins. The devil has no hold on us. The devil has no accusation. That has any weight against us. Because our advocate. Has triumphed. In his death and resurrection. And he's in the right place. Reigning high priest to plead for us and to make intercession for us. Oh, we have a wonderful salvation and a wonderful Savior. Let us keep on believing in him. Let us keep on trusting in him. Let us keep on coming to God our Father through him. No matter what the Satan says, no matter what sins are cast up, let us come boldly through him who loved us and who gave himself for us. And let us come to his table. And let us reflect further on this. And meditate on that body and that blood. That once for all offering offered up for us. Let us give him thanks in this thanksgiving service of the Lord's table. And let us give him glory.